Section 13 of The Oxford Book of American Essays Chosen by Brander Matthews This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 13 It is often assumed that the educated classes become impotent in a democracy because the representatives of those classes are not exclusively chosen to public office. This argument is a very fallacious one. It assumes that the public offices are the places of greatest influence, whereas in the United States, at least, that is conspicuously not the case. In a democracy, it is important to discriminate influence from authority. Rulers and magistrates may or may not be persons of influence, but many persons of influence never become rulers, magistrates, or representatives in parliament or legislatures. The complex industries of a modern state and its innumerable corporation services offer great fields for administrative talent which were entirely unknown to preceding generations. And these new activities attract many ambitious and capable men more strongly than the public service. These men are not on that account lost to their country or to society. The present generation has wholly escaped from the conditions of earlier centuries, when able men who were not great landowners had but three outlets for their ambition, the army, the church, or the national civil service. The national service, whether in an empire, a limited monarchy, or a republic, is now only one of many fields which offer to able and patriotic men an honorable and successful career. Indeed, legislation and public administration necessarily have a very second-hand quality, and more and more legislators and administrators become dependent on the researches of scholars, men of science and historians, and follow in the footsteps of inventors, economists, and political philosophers. Political leaders are very seldom leaders of thought. They are generally trying to induce masses of men to act on principles thought out long before. Their skill is in the selection of practicable approximations to the ideal. Their arts are arts of exposition and persuasion. Their honor comes from fidelity under trying circumstances to familiar principles of public duty. The real leaders of American thought in this century have been preachers, teachers, jurists, seers, and poets. While it is of the highest importance under any form of government that the public servants should be men of intelligence, education, and honor, it is no objection to any given form that under it large numbers of educated and honorable citizens have no connection with the public service. Well-to-do Europeans, when reasoning about the working of democracy, often assume that under any government the property holders are synonymous with the intelligent and educated classes. That is not the case in the American democracy. Anyone who has been connected with a large American university can testify that democratic institutions produce plenty of rich people who are not educated and plenty of educated people who are not rich, just as medieval society produced illiterate nobles and cultivated monks. Persons who object to manhood suffrage as the last resort for the settlement of public questions are bound to show where in all the world a juster or more practicable regulation or convention has been arrived at the objectors ought at least to indicate where the ultimate decision should in their judgment rest as for example with the landowners or the property holders or the graduates of secondary schools or the professional classes he would be a bold political philosopher who, in these days, should propose that the ultimate tribunal should be constituted in any of these ways. All the experience of the civilized world fails to indicate a safe personage, 
a safe class or a safe minority with which to deposit this power of ultimate decision on the contrary the experience of civilization indicates that no select person or class can be trusted with that power no matter what the principle of selection the convention that the majority of males shall decide public questions has obviously great recommendations it is apparently fairer than the rule of any minority and it is sure to be supported by an adequate physical force moreover its decisions are likely to enforce themselves even in matters of doubtful prognostication the fact that a majority of the males do the prophesying tends to the fulfilment of the prophecy at any rate the adoption or partial adoption of universal male suffrage by several civilized nations is coincident with unexampled ameliorations in the condition of the least fortunate and most numerous classes of the population to this general amelioration many causes have doubtless contributed but it is reasonable to suppose that the acquisition of the power which comes with votes has had something to do with it timid or conservative people often stand aghast at the possible directions of democratic desire or at some of the predicted results of democratic rule but meantime the actual experience of the american democracy proves one that property has never been safer under any form of government two that no people have ever welcomed so ardently new machinery and new inventions generally three that religious toleration was never carried so far and never so universally accepted four that nowhere have the power and disposition to read been so general five that nowhere has governmental power been more adequate or more freely exercised to levy and collect taxes to raise armies and to disband them to maintain public order and to pay off great public debts national state and town six that nowhere have property and well-being been so widely diffused and seven that no form of government ever inspired greater affection and loyalty or prompted to greater personal sacrifices in supreme moments in view of these solid facts speculations as to what universal suffrage would have done in the seventeenth and eighteenth centuries or may do in the twentieth seem futile indeed the most civilized nations of the world have all either adopted this final appeal to manhood suffrage or they are approaching that adoption by rapid stages the united states having no customs or traditions of an opposite sort to overcome have led the nations in this direction and have had the honor of devising as a result of practical experience the best safeguards for universal suffrage safeguards which in the main are intended to prevent hasty public action or action based on sudden discontents or temporary spasms of public feeling these checks are intended to give time for discussion and deliberation or in other words to secure the enlightenment of the voters before the vote if under new conditions existing safeguards prove insufficient the only wise course is to devise new safeguards the united states have made to civilization a fourth contribution of a very hopeful sort to which public attention needs to be directed lest temporary evils concerned therewith should prevent the continuation of this beneficent action the united states have furnished a demonstration that people belonging to a great variety of races or nations are under favorable circumstances fit for political freedom it is the fashion to attribute to the enormous immigration of the last fifty years some of the failures of the american political system and particularly the american failure in municipal government and the introduction in a few states of the rule of the irresponsible party foremen known as bosses 
impatient of these evils and hastily accepting this improbable explanation of them some people wish to depart from the american policy of welcoming immigrants in two respects the absorption of large numbers of immigrants from many nations into the american commonwealth has been of great service to mankind in the first place it has demonstrated that people who at home have been subject to every sort of aristocratic or despotic or military oppression become within less than a generation serviceable citizens of a republic and in the second place the united states have thus educated to freedom many millions of men furthermore the comparatively high degree of happiness and prosperity enjoyed by the people of the united states has been brought home to multitudes in europe by friends and relatives who have emigrated to this country and have commended free institutions to them in the best possible way this is a legitimate propaganda vastly more effective than any annexation or conquest of unwilling people or of people unprepared for liberty it is a great mistake to suppose that the process of assimilating foreigners began in this century the eighteenth century provided the colonies with a great mixture of peoples although the english race predominated then as now when the revolution broke out there were already english irish scotch dutch germans french portuguese and swedes in the colonies the french were to be sure in small proportion and were almost exclusively huguenot refugees but they were a valuable element in the population the germans were well diffused having established themselves in new york pennsylvania virginia and georgia the scotch were scattered through all the colonies pennsylvania especially was inhabited by an extraordinary mixture of nationalities and religion since steam navigation on the atlantic and railroad transportation on the north american continent became cheap and easy the tide of emigration has greatly increased but it is very doubtful if the amount of assimilation going on in the nineteenth century has been any larger in proportion to the population and wealth of the country that it was in the eighteenth the main difference in the assimilation going on in the two centuries is this that in the eighteenth century the newcomers were almost all protestants while in the nineteenth century a considerable proportion have been catholics one result however of the importation of large numbers of catholics into the united states has been a profound modification of the roman catholic church in regard to the manners and customs of both the clergy and the laity the scope of the authority of the priest and the attitude of the catholic church toward public education this american modification of the roman church has reacted strongly on the church in europe another great contribution to civilization made by the united states is the diffusion of material well-being among the population no country in the world approaches the united states in this respect it is seen in that diffused elementary education which implants for life a habit of reading and in the habitual optimism which characterizes the common people it is seen in the housing of the people and of their domestic animals in the comparative costliness of their food clothing and household furniture in their implements vehicles and means of transportation and in the substitution on a prodigious scale of the work of machinery for the work of men's hands this last item in american well-being is quite as striking in agriculture mining and fishing as it is in manufactures the social effects of the manufacture of power and of the discovery of means of putting that power just where it is wanted have been more striking in the united states than anywhere else manufactured and distributed power needs intelligence to direct it the bicycle is a blind 
course and must be steered at every instant somebody must show a steam drill where to strike and how deep to go so far as men and women can substitute for the direct expenditure of muscular strength the more intelligent effort of designing tending and guiding machines they win promotion in the scale of being and make their lives more interesting as well as more productive it is in the invention of machinery for producing and distributing power and at once economizing and elevating human labor that american ingenuity has been most conspicuously manifested the high price of labor in a sparsely settled country has had something to do with this striking result but the genius of the people and of their government has had much more to do with it as proof of the general proposition it suffices merely to mention the telegraph and telephone the sewing machine the cotton gin the mower reaper and threshing machine the dishwashing machine the river steamboat the sleeping car the boot and shoe machinery and the watch machinery the ultimate effects of these and kindred inventions are quite as much intellectual as physical and they are developing and increasing with a portentous rapidity which sometimes suggests a doubt whether the bodily forces of men and women are adequate to resist the new mental strains brought upon them however this may prove to be in the future the clear result in the present is an unexampled diffusion of well-being in the united states these five contributions to civilization peacekeeping religious toleration the development of manhood suffrage the welcoming of newcomers and the diffusion of well-being i hold to have been eminently characteristic of our country and so important that in spite of the qualifications and deductions which every candid citizen would admit with regard to every one of them they will ever be held in the grateful remembrance of mankind they are reasonable grounds for a steady glowing patriotism they have had much to do both as causes and as effects with the material prosperity of the united states but they are all five essentially moral contributions being triumphs of reason enterprise courage faith and justice over passion selfishness inertness timidity and distrust beneath each one of these developments there lies a strong ethical sentiment a strenuous moral and social purpose it is for such work that multitudinous democracies are fit in regard to all five of these contributions the characteristic policy of our country has been from time to time threatened with reversal as even now so threatened it is for true patriots to insist on the maintenance of these historic purposes and policies of the people of the united states our country's future perils whether already visible or still unimagined are to be met with courage and constancy founded firmly on these popular achievements in the past i talk of dreams by w d howells but it is mostly my own dreams i talk of and that will somewhat excuse me for talking of dreams at all everyone knows how delightful the dreams are that one dreams one's self and how insipid the dreams of others are i had an illustration of the fact not many evenings ago when a company of us got telling dreams i had by far the best dreams of any to be quite frank mine were the only dreams worth listening to they were richly imaginative delicately fantastic exquisitely whimsical and humorous in the last degree and i wondered that when the rest could have listened to them they were always eager to cut in with some silly senseless tasteless thing that made me sorry and ashamed for them i shall not be going too far if i say that it was on their part the grossest betrayal of vanity that i ever witnessed 
but the egotism of some people concerning their dreams is almost incredible they will come down to breakfast and bore everybody with the recital of the nonsense that has passed through their brains in sleep as if they were not bad enough when they were awake they will not spare the slightest detail and if by the mercy of heaven they have forgotten something they will be sure to recollect it and go back and give it all over again with added circumstance such people do not reflect that there is something so purely and intensely personal in dreams that they can rarely interest anyone but the dreamer and that to the dearest friend the closest relation or connection they can seldom be otherwise than tedious and impertinent the habit husbands and wives have of making each other listen to their dreams is especially cruel they have each other quite helpless and for this reason they should all the more carefully guard themselves from abusing their advantage parents should not afflict their offspring with the rehearsal of their mental maunderings in sleep and children should learn that one of the first duties a child owes its parents is to spare them the anguish of hearing what it has dreamed about overnight a like forbearance in regard to the community at large should be taught as the first trait of good manners in the public schools if we ever come to teach good manners there one certain exceptional dreams however are so imperatively significant so vitally important that it would be wrong to withhold them from the knowledge of those who happened not to dream them and i feel some such quality in my own dreams so strongly that i could scarcely forgive myself if i did not however briefly impart them it was only last week for instance that i found myself one night in the company of the duke of wellington the great duke the iron one in fact and after a few moments of agreeable conversation on topics of interest among gentlemen his grace said that now if i pleased he would like a couple of those towels we had not been speaking of towels that i remember but it seemed the most natural thing in the world that he should mention them in the connection whatever it was and i went at once to get them for him at the place where they gave out towels and where i found some very civil people they told me that what i wanted was not towels and they gave me instead two bath gowns of rather scanty measure butternut in colour and turkish in texture the garments made somehow a very strong impression upon me so that i could draw them now if i could draw anything as they looked when they were held up to me at the same moment for no reason that i can allege i passed from a social to a menial relation to the duke and foresaw that when i went back to him with those bath gowns he would not thank me as one gentleman would another but would offer me a tip as if i were a servant this gave me no trouble for i at once dramatized a little scene between myself and the duke in which i should bring him the bath gowns and he should offer me the tip and i should refuse it with a low bow and say that i was an american what i did not dramatize or what seemed to enter into the dialogue quite without my agency was the duke's reply to my proud speech it was foreshown me that he would say he did not see why that should make any difference i suppose it was in the hurt i felt at this wound to our national dignity that i now instantly invented the society of some ladies whom i told of my business with those bath gowns i still had them in my hands and urged them to go with me and call upon the duke they expressed somehow that they would rather not and then i urged that the duke was very handsome this seemed to end the whole affair and i passed on to other visions which i cannot recall i have not often had a dream of such international import in the offence 
offered through me to the American character and its well-known superiority to tips. But I have had others quite as humiliating to me personally. In fact, I am rather in the habit of having such dreams, and I think I may not unjustly attribute to them the disciplined modesty which the reader will hardly fail to detect in my present essay. It has more than once been my fate to find myself during sleep in battle, where I behave with so little courage as to bring discredit upon our flag and shame upon myself. In these circumstances I am not anxious to make even a showing of courage. My one thought is to get away as rapidly and safely as possible. It is said that this is really the wish of all novices under fire, and that the difference between a hero and a coward is that the hero hides it, with a duplicity which finally does him honour, and that the coward frankly runs away. I have never really been in battle and if it is anything like a battle in dreams i would not willingly qualify myself to speak by the card on this point neither have i ever really been upon the stage but in dreams i have often been there and always in a great trouble of mind at not knowing my part it seems a little odd that i should not sometimes be prepared but i never am and i feel that when the curtain rises i shall be disgraced beyond all reprieve i dare say it is the suffering from this that awakens me in time or changes the current of my dreams so that i have never yet been actually hooted from the stage two but i do not much object to these ordeals as to some social experiences which i have in dreams i cannot understand why one should dream of being slighted or snubbed in society, but this is what I have done more than once, though never perhaps so signally as in the instance I am about to give. I found myself in a large room where people were sitting at lunch or supper around small tables, as is the custom, I am told, at parties in the houses of our nobility and gentry. I was feeling very well not too proud i hope but in harmony with the time and place i was very well dressed for me and as i stood talking to some ladies at one of the tables i was saying some rather brilliant things for me i lounged easily on one foot as i have observed men of fashion do and as i talked i flipped my gloves which i held in one hand across the other I remember thinking that this was a peculiarly distinguished action. Upon the whole, I comported myself like one in the habit of such affairs, and I turned to walk away to another table, very well satisfied with myself and with the effect of my splendor upon the ladies. But I had got only a few paces off when I perceived, I could not see with my back turned, one of the ladies leaned forward and heard her say to the rest in a tone of killing condescension and patronage, I don't see why that person isn't as well as another. I say that I do not like this sort of dreams, and I never would have them if I could help. They make me ask myself if I am really such a snob when I am waking, and this in itself is very unpleasant. If I am, I cannot help hoping that it will not be found out. And in my dreams I am always less sorry for the misdeeds I commit than for their possible discovery. I have done some very bad things in dreams, which I have no concern for whatever, except as they seem to threaten me with publicity or bring me within the penalty of the law. And I believe this is the attitude of most other criminals, remorse being a fiction of the poets, according to the students of the criminal class. It is not agreeable to bring this home to one's self, but the fact is not without its significance in another direction. It implies that both in the case of the dream criminal and the deed criminal there is perhaps the same taint of insanity, 
only in the deed criminal it is active and in the dream criminal it is passive in both the inhibitory clause that forbids evil is off but the dreamer is not bidden to do evil as the maniac is or as the malefactor often seems to be the dreamer is purely unmoral good and bad are the same to his conscience he has no more to do with right and wrong than the animals he is reduced to the state of the merely natural man and perhaps the primitive men were really like what we all are now in our dreams perhaps all life to them was merely dreaming and they never had anything like our waking consciousness which seems to be the offspring of conscience or else the parent of it until men passed the first stage of being perhaps that which we call the soul for want of a better name or a worse could hardly have existed and perhaps in dreams the soul is mostly absent now the soul or the principle that we call the soul is the supernal criticism of the deeds done in the body which goes perpetually on in the waking mind while this watches and warns or commands we go right but when it is off duty we go neither right nor wrong but are as the beasts that perish a common theory is that dreams which we remember are those we have in the drowse which precedes sleeping and waking but i do not altogether accept this theory in fact there is very little proof of it we often wake from a dream literally but there is no proof that we did not dream in the middle of the night the dream which is quite as vividly with us in the morning as the one we wake from i should think that the dream which has some color of conscience in it was the drowse dream and that the dream which has none is the sleep dream and i believe that the most of our dreams will be found by this test to be sleep dreams it is in these we may know what we would be without our souls without their supernal criticism of the mind for the mind keeps on working in them with the lights of waking knowledge both experience and observation but ruthlessly remorselessly by them we may know what the state of the habitual criminal is what the state of the lunatic the animal the devil is in them the personal character ceases the dreamer is remanded to his type three it is very strange in the matter of dreadful dreams how the body of the terror is in the course of often dreaming reduced to a mere convention for a long time i was tormented with a nightmare of burglars and at first i used to dramatize the whole affair in detail from the time the burglars approached the house till they mounted the stairs and the light of their dark lanterns shone under the door into my room now i have blue penciled all that introductory detail i have a light shining in under my door at once i know that it is my old burglars and i have the effects of nightmare without further ceremony there are other nightmares that still cost me a great deal of trouble in their construction as for instance the nightmare of clinging to the face of a precipice or the eaves of a lofty building i have to take as much pains with the arrangement of these as if i were now dreaming them for the first time and were hardly more than an apprentice in the business perhaps the most universal dream of all is that disgraceful dream of appearing in public places and in society with very little or nothing on this dream spares neither age nor sex i believe and i dare say the innocency of wordless infancy is abused by it and dotage pursued to the tomb i have not the least doubt adam and eve had it in eden though up to the moment the fig-leaf came in it is difficult to imagine just what plight they found themselves in that seemed improper probably there was some plight 
the most amusing thing about this dream is the sort of defensive process that goes on in the mind in search of self-justification or explanation is there not some peculiar circumstance or special condition in whose virtue it is wholly right and proper for one to come to a fashionable assembly clad simply in a towel or to go about the street in nothing but a pair of kid gloves or of pyjamas at the most this or something like it the mind of the dreamer struggles to establish with a good deal of anxious appeal to the bystanders and a final sense of the hopelessness of the cause one may easily laugh off this sort of dream in the morning but there are other shameful dreams whose inculpation projects itself far into the day and whose infamy often lingers about one till lunchtime everyone nearly has had them but it is not the kind of dream that anyone is fond of telling the gross vanity of the most besotted dream-teller keeps that sort back during the forenoon at least the victim goes about with the dim question whether he is not really that kind of man harassing him and a sort of remote fear that he may be i fancy that as to his nature and as to his mind he is so and that but for the supernal criticism but for his soul he might be that kind of man in very act and deed the dreams we sometimes have about other people are not without a curious suggestion and the superstitious of those superstitious who like to invent their own superstitions might very well imagine that the persons dreamed of had a writing complicity in their facts as well as the dreamer this is a conjecture that must of course not be forced to any conclusion one must not go to one of these persons and ask however much one would like to ask sir have you no recollection of such and such a thing at such and such a time and place which happened to us in my dream any such person would be fully justified in not answering the question it would be of all interviewing the most intolerable species yet a singular interest a curiosity not altogether indefensible will attach to these persons in the dreamer's mind and he will not be without the sense ever after that he and they have a secret in common this is dreadful but the only thing that i can thing to do about it is to urge people to keep out of other people's dreams by every means in their power for there are things in dreams very awful which would not be at all so in waking quite witless and aimless things which at the time were of such baleful effect that it remains forever i remember dreaming when i was quite a small boy not more than ten years old a dream which is vivider in my mind now than anything that happened at the time i suppose it came remotely from my reading of certain tales of the grotesque and the arabesque which had just then fallen into my hands and it involved simply an action of the fire company in the little town where i lived they were working the brakes of the old fire engine which would seldom respond to their efforts and as their hands rose and fell they set up the heart-shaking and soul-desolating cry of arms poe arms poe arms poe this and nothing more was the body of my horror and if the reader is not moved by it the fault is his and not mine for i can assure him that nothing in my experience has been more dreadful to me i can hardly accept the dismaying apparition of a clown whom i once saw somewhat later in life rise through the air in a sitting posture and float lightly over the house-roof snapping his fingers and vaguely smiling while the antennae on his forehead which clowns have in common with some other insects nodded elasticity i do not know why this portent 
should have been so terrifying or indeed that it was a portent at all for nothing ever came of it what i know is that it was to the last degree threatening and awful i never got anything but joy out of the circuses where this dream must have originated but the pantomime of don giovanni which i saw at the theatre was as gruesome to me waking as it was to me dreaming the statue of commendatore in getting down from his horse to pursue the wicked hero i think that is what he gets down for set an example by which a long line of statues afterward profited in my dreams for many years and i do not know but quite up to the time when i adopted burglars as the theme of my nightmares i was almost always chased by a marble statue with an uplifted arm and almost always i ran along the verge of a pond to escape it i believe that i got this pond out of my remote childhood and that it may have been a fish-pond embowered by weeping willows which i used to admire in the door-yard of a neighbour i have somehow a greater respect for the material of this earlier nightmare than i have for that of the later ones and no doubt the reader will agree with me that it is much more romantic to be pursued by a statue than to be threatened by burglars it is but a few hours ago however that i saved myself from these inveterate enemies by waking up just in time for breakfast they did not come with that light of the dark lanterns shining under the door or i should have known them at once and not had so much bother but they intimated their presence in the catch of the lock which would not close securely and there was some question at first whether they were not ghosts i thought of tying the doorknob on the inside of my room to my bedpost a bedpost that has not been in existence for fifty years but after suffering a while i decided to speak to them from an upper window by this time they had turned into a trio of harmless necessary tramps and at my appeal to them absolutely nonsensical as i now believe it to have been to regard the peculiar circumstances whatever they were or were not they did really get up from the back porch where they were seated and go quietly away burglars are not always so easily to be entreated on one occasion when i found a party of them digging at the corner of my house on concord avenue in cambridge and opened the window over them to expostulate the leader looked up at me in well-affected surprise he lifted his hand with a twenty-dollar note in it toward me and said oh can you change me a twenty-dollar bill i expressed a polite regret that i had not so much money about me and then he said to the rest go ahead boys and they went on undermining my house i do not know what came of it all of ghosts i have seldom dreamed so far as i can remember in fact i have never dreamed of the kind of ghosts that we are all more or less afraid of though i have dreamed rather often of the spirits of departed friends but i once dreamed of dying and the reader who has never died yet may be interested to know what it is like according to this experience of mine which i do not claim is typical it is like a fire kindling in an air-tight stove with paper and shavings the gathering smoke and gases suddenly burst into flame and puff the door out and all is over i have not yet been led to execution for the many crimes i have committed in my dreams but i was once in the hands of a barber who added to the shaving and shampooing business the art of removing his customers heads in the treatment for headache as i took my seat in his chair i had some lingering doubts as to the effect of a treatment so drastic and i ventured to mention the case of a friend of mine 
a gentleman somewhat eminent in the law who after several weeks was still going about without his head the barber did not attempt to refute my position he merely said oh well he had such a very thick sort of head anyway this was a sarcasm but i think it was urged as a reason though it may not have been we rarely bring away from sleep the things that seem so brilliant to us in our dreams verse is especially apt to fade away or turn into doggerel in the memory and the witty sayings which we contrive to remember will hardly bear the test of daylight the most perfect thing of the kind out of my own dreams was something that i seemed to wake with the very sound of in my ears it was after a certain dinner which had been rather uncommonly gay with a good deal of very good talk which seemed to go on all night and when i woke in the morning someone was saying oh i shouldn't at all mind his robbing peter to pay paul if i felt sure that paul would get the money this i think really humorous and an extremely neat bit of characterization i feel free to praise it because it was not i who said it five apparently the greater part of dreams have no more mirth than sense in them this is perhaps because the man is in dreams reduced to the brute condition and is the lawless inferior of the waking man intellectually as the lawless in waking are always the inferiors of the lawful some loose thinkers suppose that if we give the rein to the imagination it will do great things but it will really do little things foolish and worthless things as we witness in dreams where it is quite unbridled it must keep close to truth and it must be under the law if it would work strongly and sanely the man in his dreams is really lower than the lunatic in his deliriums these have a logic of their own but the dreamer has not even a crazy logic like a dog he hunts in dreams and probably his dreams and the dogs are not only alike but are of the same quality in his wicked dreams the man is not only animal he is devil so wholly is he let into his evils as the swedenborgians say the wrong is indifferent to him until the fear of detection and punishment steals in upon him even then he is not sorry for his misdeed as i have said before he is only anxious to escape its consequences it seems probable that when this fear makes itself felt he is near to waking and probably when we dream as we often do that the thing is only a dream and hope for rescue from it by waking we are always just about to wake this double effect is very strange but still more strange is the effect which we are privy to in the minds of others when they do not merely say things to us which are wholly unexpected but think things that we know they are thinking and that they do not express in words a great many years ago when i was young i dreamed that my father who was in another town came into the room where i was really lying asleep and stood by my bed he wished to greet me after our separation but he reasoned that if he did so i should wake and he turned and left the room without touching me this process in his mind which i knew as clearly and accurately as if it had apparently gone on in my own was apparently confined to his mind as absolutely as anything could be that was not spoken or in any wise uttered of course it was of my agency like any other part of the dream and it was something like the operation of the novelist's intention through the mind of his characters but in this there is the author's consciousness that he is doing it all himself while in my dream this reasoning in the mind of another was something that i felt myself mere witness of in fact there is no analogy so far as i can make out 
between the process of literary invention and the process of dreaming in the invention the critical faculty is vividity and constantly alert in dreaming it seems altogether absent it seems absent too in what we call daydreaming or that sort of dramatizing action which perhaps goes on perpetually in the minds or some minds but this daydreaming is not otherwise any more like night dreaming than invention is for the man is never more actively and consciously a man and never has a greater will to be fine and high and grand than in his daydreams while in his night dreams he is quite willing to be a miscreant of any worst sort it is very remarkable in view of this fact that we have now and then though ever so much more rarely dreams that are as angelic as those others are demoniac is it possible that then the dreamer is let into his goods the word is swedenborg's again instead of his evils it may be supposed that in sleep the dreamer lies passive while his proper soul is away and other spirits celestial and infernal have free access to his mind and abuse it to their own ends in the one case and use it in his behalf in the other that would be an explanation but nothing seems quite to hold in regard to dreams if it is true why should the dreamer's state so much oftener be imbued with evil than with good it might be answered that the evil forces are much more positive and aggressive than the good or that the love of the dreamer which is his life being mainly evil invites the wicked spirits oftener but that is a point which i would rather leave each dreamer to settle for himself the greater number of everyone's dreams like the romantic novel i fancy concern incident rather than character and i am not sure after all that the dream which convicts the dreamer of an essential baseness is commoner than the dream that tells in his favor morally i dare say every reader of this book has had dreams so amusing that he has wakened himself from them by laughing and then not found them so very funny or perhaps not been able to recall them at all i have had at least one of this sort remarkable for other reasons which remains perfect in my mind though it is now some ten years old one of the children had been exposed to a very remote chance of scarlet fever at the house of a friend and had been duly scolded for the risk which was then quite forgotten i dreamed that this friend however was giving a lady's lunch at which i was unaccountably and invisibly present and the talk began to run upon the scarlet fever cases in her family she said that after the last she had fumigated the whole house for seventy-two hours the period seemed very significant and important in my dream and had burned everything she could lay her hands on and what did the nurse burn asked one of the other ladies the hostess began to laugh the nurse didn't burn a thing then all the rest burst out laughing at the joke and the laughter woke me to see the boy sitting up in his bed and hear him saying oh i am so sick it was the nausea which announces scarlet fever and for six weeks after that we were in quarantine very likely the fear of the contagion had been in my nether mind all the time but so far as consciousness could testify of it i had wholly forgotten it one rarely loses one's personality in dreams it is rather intensified with all the proper circumstances and relations of it but i have had at least one dream in which i seemed to transcend my own circumstance and condition with remarkable completeness even my epoch my precious present i left behind or ahead rather and in my unity with the persons of my dream i became strictly medieval in fact i have 
always called it my medieval dream to such as i could get to listen to it and it had for its scene a feudal tower in some waste place a tower open at the top and with a deep clear pool of water at the bottom so that it instantly became known to me as if i had always known it for the pool tower while i stood looking into it in a medieval dress and a medieval mood there came flying in at the open door of the ruin beside me the duke's hunchback and after him furious and shrieking maledictions the swarthy beauty whom i was aware the duke was tired of the keeping was now not only ducal but thoroughly italian and it was suggested somehow to my own subtle italian perception that the hunchback had been set on to tease the girl and provoke her so that she should turn upon him and try to wreak her fury on him and chase him into the pool tower and up the stone stairs that wound round its hollow to the top where the solemn sky showed the fearful spire of the steps was unguarded and when i had lost the pair from sight with the dwarf's mocking laughter and the girl's angry cries in my ears there came fluttering from the height like a bird wounded and whirling from a lofty tree the figure of the girl while far aloof the hunchback peered over at her fall midway in her descent her head struck against the edge of the steps with a kish such as an eggshell makes when broken against the edge of a platter and then plunged into the dark pool at my feet where i could presently see her lying in the clear depths and the blood curling upward from the wound in her skull like a dark smoke i was not sensible of any great pity i accepted the affair quite medievally as something that might very well have happened given the girl the duke and the dwarf and the time and place i am rather fond of a medieval setting for those dreams that wave before the half-shut eye just closing for an afternoon nap then i invite to my vision a wide landscape with a cold wintry afternoon light upon it and over this plain i have bands and groups of people scurrying in medieval hose of diverse colours and medieval leathern jerkins hugging themselves against the frost and very miserable they affect me with a profound compassion they represent to me somehow the vast mass of humanity the mass that does the work and earns the bread and goes cold and hungry through all the ages i should be at a loss to say why this was the effect and i am utterly unable to say why these four dreams which i partially solicit should have such a tremendous significance as they seem to have they are mostly of the most evanescent and intangible character but they have one trait in common they always involve the attribution of ethical motive and quality to material things and in their passage through my brain they promised me a solution of the riddle of the painful earth in the very instant when they are gone forever they are of innumerable multitude chasing each other with the swiftness of light and never staying to be seized by the memory which seems already drugged with sleep before their course begins one of these dreams indeed i did capture and i found it to be the figure eight but lying on its side and in that posture involving the mystery and the revelation of the mystery of the universe i leave the reader to imagine why as we grow older i think we are less and less able to remember our dreams this is perhaps because the experience of youth is less dense and the empty spaces of the young consciousness are more hospitable to these airy visitants a few dreams of my later life stand out in strong relief but for the most part they blend in an indistinguishable mass and pass away with the actualities into a common oblivion i should say that 
they were more frequent with me than they used to be it seems to me that now i dream whole nights through and much more about the business of my waking life than formerly as i earn my living by weaving a certain sort of dreams into literary form it might be supposed that i would sometime dream of the personages in these dreams but i cannot remember that i have ever done so the two kinds of inventing the voluntary and the involuntary seem absolutely and finally distinct end of section thirteen